It's Let's Eat, a special presentation from ABC News Radio. Here's your host, Daria Albinger. Happy Thanksgiving. We're about to sit down to a multi-course feast on all things food. Coming up, we'll spend some time at Elizabeth Poet's picturesque farm in San Julian, California. Then, beer made from bread? We'll take you to a different kind of brewery, and we'll learn how the turkey became the star of our Thanksgiving meal. But first, did you know that hospitality is woven into American history? Many of the events that shaped our nation were planned at and in some cases took place at an inn or a tavern, and many of them are still in business. France's Tavern may have opened its doors about a century after the Wayside Inn and the White Horse Tavern. We'll talk more about them in just a moment. But France's Tavern's connection to history may be even more important. So let's go back to the year 1762. It's the oldest standing structure in New York. Um, it was built in 1719, originally as a mansion owned by the Delancey family, as in Delancey Street. Um, in 1762, um, a man called Samuel Francis bought the, the mansion for £2,000 and opened up uh, a tavern here. Eddie Travers is the current owner of Francis Tavern, and over a lunch of chicken pot pie, sticky toffee pudding and a pineapple rum punch, all dishes that you might have had during colonial times, Travers told me how, in its early years, the tavern served as a headquarters for George Washington, a venue for peace negotiations with the British, and housed federal offices in the early republic. But it's what happened on December 4th, 1783, that cemented Francis Tavern as an indelible part of American history, when it hosted an elaborate turtle feast dinner in the building's long room, for a very important guest, George Washington. After the war was over, um, it, this is where um, George Washington gave his farewell address to his generals. And uh, yeah, he, I guess he picked here because he spent a lot of time here, um, you know, with the Sons of the Revolution. This is where they, they used to have their secret meetings when they were plotting against the British. And he became a very good friend of Samuel Francis. It was a celebration, but Travers says it didn't last for long. After the war, when the British left New York, and I guess they found out what had what had gone on in Francis Tavern, um, they decided to fire cannonballs back into Francis Tavern and, and destroyed it. So that was and it's destroyed for the first time, really. And uh, actually, in the museum upstairs, um, there is uh, some unexploded cannonballs that were fired through the roof that day. And that wasn't the only close call for Francis. You know, there was a there was a fire here too years ago you can actually actually still see the charring on the, on the beams yeah. on the bottom of the beams so there was a fire then obviously being bombed after the after evacuation day um, it was bombed again in 1975 by the FALN then hurricane sandy did a huge amount of damage to us as well so so it again it's been through the wars and it keeps on coming back it even survived an effort in 1900 to demolish the building to build a parking lot so how does Travers feel knowing that he's keeping an important chapter and the story of America alive. Every day we pinch ourselves to, to, to think that, you know, this tavern is older than America. This country was designed by the men who used to meet in here and discuss what this country is going to look, uh, look like going forward. So pretty much American history started over pints and food at Francis Tavern. And it's a responsibility that Travers, who was born and raised in Ireland, but now calls himself proudly American, doesn't take for granted. 
Now, back to the Wayside Inn and the White Horse Tavern. You see, almost as soon as the colonists arrived, they began to open inns and taverns to provide food and drink to the locals, and sometimes also a place to sleep for weary travelers. Whether it's a pineapple above the door in Williamsburg or a white horse painted on signs outside establishments in New England, there was no shortage of gathering places. And two, the Wayside Inn in Sudbury, Massachusetts, and the White Horse Tavern in Newport, Rhode Island, have been battling it out almost as long as America's been around over which one has been here the longest. We met the men in charge and gave them a chance to make their cases. Meet Steve Pickford, the innkeeper of the Wayside Inn. We claim to be the oldest continuing operating inn in the country. We opened in 1716 and... We have uh, been operating ever since. And Jared LaPlante, general manager of the White Horse Tavern in Newport, Rhode Island. Are you the oldest continuously operating? Yes. Because the Wayside intends to take exception to that. Yeah, if you go down to Newport uh, Historical Society, they'll say something else. So we asked Becca Bertrand, the executive director of the city's historical society, about it. The Wayside Inn in Sudbury, Massachusetts, says they hold that title. Oh, Controversial. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can say that the land passed on from an early governor of the colony of Rhode Island to a William Mays. And then when he built the tavern, he acquired his tavern license in 1687. And we hold here at the Newport Historical Society those documents to show that tavern license from the 17th century. But Pickford says... We can prove it. We have a copy of our uh, license as a house of entertainment in 1716. And we have documents every year. I mean, I have invoices from buying kegs of rum and whiskey in the 1700s in shillings and pence. We we go back that far. And in 300 years, I'm the 11th innkeeper. And now LaPlante with a brief history of the White Horse. It was originally founded in 1673 as the tavern. It was in the same family for about 200 years. And then it was sold into the Nichols family. And that's when it actually became, quote unquote, the White Horse Tavern. It was given its name. Pickford says the crowd at the Wayside Inn tended to imbibe. The first license, Mr. Cowgod, said he was now legally entitled to provide food and drink to man and beast. Man and beast. And and we still have a sign uh, hanging in the tavern that that shows that. LaPlante says some of our founding fathers, including Ben Franklin, were frequent guests at the White Horse. It is documented that Franklin was here. It's rumored that Washington has been here, but there's no official proof. The history at both places can't be argued. And they both almost became just that. History. You see, we almost lost the White Horse and the Wayside Inn during the same decade. That was back in the 50s, and they were actually going to turn into a gas station. And the Wayside? We had a a drastic fire right before Christmas in 1955. Devastating. And, uh, you know, had to do the rebuild after that. Thankfully, both are still open. And we asked LaPlante, what keeps people coming? Some of it's probably just the nostalgia, you know? It's definitely a destination. Aside from a really good story, which all of these restaurants have, what is it that keeps them open for so long and keeps them relevant? Hospitality. Uh, We preach value for price paid. You know, if you give a good product and you give good service. Um, You don't need to advertise. People are going to return. And hopefully they'll both stay in business another 200 plus years. Ever wanted to pack up, leave the city or the suburbs, buy a farm and live off the land? I know I've thought of it. 
And so is ABC's Jason Nathanson, who spent the day with a TV chef whose family has been running a farm for generations. Driving up to Elizabeth Poet's house on her ranch in the rolling hills of Central California is like driving into someone's idyllic farm life fantasy. I mean, this is straight out of a, a book. Like the dog comes and greets you as you drive your car up and then chases your car up. That's Tommy right there. Hi, Tommy. And my, my GPS is very confused. Uh, yes, it usually does. It usually starts spinning backwards after, <laughs> the, after you drive up a little bit. This is not on the map. Yes, it is definitely not on the map. There are pigs. It's Charlotte and Harriet. You can hear. How big, how big are the pigs? <laughs> they're, they're about 450 pounds each. They're very big pigs. They're very big pigs. And there are chickens. Um, this is our eggs. Oh, oh you, look, you can feel this is still warm. Ooh, look at that. All right, funny, huh? And then usually there's eggs in this tree. Wait, why are there eggs in the tree? Because we let oh. them out. <laughs> and they hop up into the tree? <laughs> yes. In one area, where Poet opens up the farm and throws events, there are several long tables that would seat dozens of people each under an open structure beautifully covered in grapevines. So right now it's green. The grapes are just finishing up. Wait, those year. are real grapes? <laughs> yes, let's taste them. Mm. Good, right? Very good. Mm -hmm. This looks like where Stevie Nicks would write songs. <laughs> Well, I take that as a compliment. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. No, it's, laughs> I think that's awesome. <laughs> There's an overflowing fruit and vegetable garden, a barn older than her and I put together, apple trees from which she'll bake me a pie, a small <laughs> army of small dogs, and five to 700 cattle, the main focus of this ranch. So we are on Ranch of San Julian. It's been in my family for, I'm a seventh generation, so my boys will be eight generations. Um, it's been in our family, so a very long time, since 1837, actually. Wow. Um, and this is the headquarters of the ranch, and it's kind of the heart of the ranch where- We're in Lompoc, California, a little north and a little west of Santa Barbara, close enough to the coast to get a thick layer of fog most mornings, the farm dotted with hundreds, maybe thousands, of majestic oak trees. Poet lives here with her husband and two sons, her parents, and various other family members scattered about. How many acres? The ranch is 14,000 acres. 14,000? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a lot I, of work. It sounds um, like, I mean, the dream would be that I'm like riding a horse into the sunset every day. But indeed, it is not where we are fixing fence every day or moving cows or, I mean, one of the things I do love about ranching is that every single day is different. Uh -huh. No matter what, every single day is gonna be different whether you like it or not. And it's not just traditional farm stuff. Poet hosts the show Ranch to Table on the Magnolia Network. This is a beautiful time of year on the ranch. It's is this where you film your show? Yes. It is. Yep, this is my kitchen. And she just wrote her first cookbook, The Ranch Table, which she told me about while serving me a delicious heirloom tomato and basil salad with ingredients we had just picked from her garden. Because it's my first book, I'm hopefully of many, that I'd wanted to, it to really begin with like how food moves throughout an entire year on the ranch, like really focus more on like the food and all the things that we have and all the meals that we eat throughout an entire year on the ranch. And part of one of those meals in fall and perfect for Thanksgiving. Okay, so we are making an apple pie from the cookbook. It's a spiced honey apple pie with a ginger crust. 
And where does this come from? It's an apple pie with ginger, but I wanted a lot. Apples is something that we have a lot of trees. I love making apple pie. Plus I always put in this honey, which is really good. And then ginger, I love ginger. So I add that to the crust and into the apples. Where did the ginger come from? Ginger is just something that I eat of as much just as I can. something you love. I love ginger. And the honey is from the farm? The farm, yep. Your, yep. your honey? Yep, it's our, yep, it's the ranch honey. Rancho San Julian honey. It's really delicious. I love having that honey with the apples. It's just a really good mixture. As we make the pie in the same kitchen where her great-grandmother made pie decades ago, it's hard not to think about the history and the future of a farm like this. It's something Poet tells me she thinks about a lot. Um, my main goal is to, and generations before me um, on, as our family, is to take care of the ranch, to maintain the ranch, and to leave it better for the next generation, and to preserve it. And I think that's really like all I can do. Now, when you say the next generation, is that your kids? My kids, yeah, my kids, my cousin's kids. Do they have to take over the ranch oh, in the future at some point? That's a good question. Um, they will, they might not have to work here, but they might have to, they'll be involved. It's all very Yellowstone. We're ranching so hard. How can we do it? Because it's one hell of a life, Tate. It's something we reference several times throughout the day. The Paramount Plus series starring Kevin Costner is the head of a Montana cattle ranch that has been in his family for generations. A ranch he has to literally fight to keep so that he can pass it down to his kids and grandkids. It's also very Yellowstone in that when you're out here among the cows and chickens, you have to rely on your neighbors a lot more. Where's the nearest grocery store? Uh, like 20 minutes, 30 minutes. So it's not like you're gonna run out and grab some milk. You go um, to your neighbors for that. And like Yellowstone, when you need help branding your cattle, you can't do it alone. You could not do it. And, and, we, and we do that and then, you know, our neighbor will have a branding and we'll all go over there. So it's, it's something that we all, throughout branding season, you know, we're on the phone being like, okay, you're grabbing that date. We'll grab this date. You know, it's really kind of uh, something that we are all discussing together in a way. Do you ever um, say, I just don't want to go to Mark's branding. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm so tired from working on the farm all week. <laughs> no, brandings are fun. You get to you get to be able to see all your friends in one place. I mean, I just feel like it's it's so busy throughout the year, and ranching can be very much on your own for a lot of time. So it's fun to be able to get together, and then there's always food and drinks, and it's great. <laughs> and the dogs are coming with us. And there are always out. dogs. Back in Poet's Kitchen making the apple pie, there are four dogs, almost always underfoot. And they all get along? They're all oh, friends? yeah. They all love each other. Well, well, let's see. Oh. Um, Franny bothers Gertie. If you really need to know the particulars. I do. I need to know. Yeah. I, I need all the tea on the, on the dogs. <laughs> Franny uh, thinks that Gertie is her best friend in the whole world, but I think that Gertie is completely annoyed by Franny. Oh. Yes. Oh, Fran, Fran, down. Um, so, yes, but otherwise they all, yes, they all get along really That was well. the sound of a dog ripping off my microphone and then trying to eat it. <laughs> and while the dogs ate microphones, we ate pie. We just go for it. That's really good. Oh, good. I like having the pieces of apple versus making it too apple saucy. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That was my first bite of the crust. The crust is delicious. It's all about a good crust for yeah. pie. 
There's a stillness to the farm life poet and generations of her family have created, a mile or so from the nearest main road. You don't hear any cars or city noise, just nature. She brings that calmness to her cooking, and it's one of the things she hopes to be able to pass along to others, whether it's dinner for two or Thanksgiving dinner for 40. Uh, I think sometimes people get so nervous or worked up in a kitchen where I just, my hope I mean, what the show has been and the book has been that, like, we simmer all that down and just have fun in a kitchen and kind of bring back the joy and not the stress. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's just food. It's food. Right. It's food. Everybody's okay. We're all okay. We're all lucky to be eating food. Right. So that's great. <laughs> at Rancho San Julian on the central coast of California, Jason Abramson, ABC News. What kid hasn't traced their hand, then drawn eyes, a mouth, and some feathers on it in honor of Thanksgiving? That project's been a staple of elementary school art classes for years. But did you know the turkey was not the symbol of this holiday from the beginning? Nor was it the entree at the first Thanksgiving. That is, if there even was a first Thanksgiving. With a little more on the history of the holiday and the bird that's at the center of it, here's ABC's Sherry Preston. Ah, Thanksgiving, a time to be grateful, to celebrate family, friends, togetherness, and a table full of... (laughs) That guy. For a lot of us, Thanksgiving just wouldn't be the same without a big, fat, beautifully browned turkey on the table. In fact, it's become so synonymous with the holiday that Tom Turkey, the eye-rolling, wing-flapping, head-bobbing bird, is the only float allowed to lead off the iconic Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. But how do we get here? Of all the foods across all the country we could have chosen for our Thanksgiving dinner bird, how did turkey win the day? First of all, a little about the origins of Thanksgiving itself. And guess what? It wasn't the pilgrims that started it. Every society, right? every agrarian society, has a harvest festival. It doesn't matter if you're the Aztec or you're the ancient Greek. I mean, if you're planting crops, when harvest season comes, you are praying to something or someone that the harvest comes through. And if it does, you are thankful. And if it doesn't, you're pleading that you will make it through the winter. That simple. Troy Burkham is a history professor at Texas A&M University. He's written a few books on the origins of food and says the pilgrims did have a harvest festival and they did invite the Native Americans who were already here when they arrived. But they didn't eat turkey, or at least we don't think so. There was a feast, they, they invited um, members of the, the Wampanoag community in, led by Mazazoet. We have no idea what they ate. All we, well, the specific thing that they mentioned was they bring in five deer. Wait a minute, deer? So why aren't we eating venison sausage and backstrap on Thanksgiving? Well, the reason for that is kind of a woman named Sarah Josepha Hale. She's sort of the founder of our modern-day Thanksgiving, and she came along a lot later than the pilgrims. Born in the 1880s, she was a New Englander, an abolitionist, a big believer in education, and the editor of a very popular periodical called The Godey's Ladies Book. She's also the person who wrote this song. Mary had a little lamb. Mary had a little lamb, little lamb. Okay, so why aren't we eating lamb chops on Thanksgiving? Professor Burkham says Sarah Hale wasn't really interested in lambs, What she was interested in was trying to bring the pre-Civil War country together. As a rallying cry, she decides to focus on Thanksgiving. So this becomes kind of a 
big push from her magazine starting in the 1840s, particularly in 1846, she writes this kind of essay, why politicians should make it a national holiday. It's her original vision, right, of what Thanksgiving, she aspires it to be, becomes what we celebrate today. She started a letter writing campaign to President Lincoln, urging him to make Thanksgiving a federal holiday. And three weeks after the Battle of Gettysburg, Sarah Hale got her wish. President Lincoln signed a proclamation officially making a national day of Thanksgiving in the month of November. Doesn't mean everybody was on board, though. White Southerners pushed back. The country's in a, you know, a mess, right? It's very much divided over the issues of slavery, culturally different, and she's looking for unification themes and saying, oh, well, you know, real Americans, right? The real American holiday of Thanksgiving is what it's all about. And part of the reason the Southerners balked at that is, you know, quite rightly, the Pilgrims weren't the first ones from England to show up and set up a colony. I mean, the Virginians quite rightly went, wait a minute, Jamestown had been here for a while and we have our own traditions. We have older versions of harvest festivals and so on. And you're, those Yankees are trying to tell us what to, to do again. Eventually, they came around and began celebrating Thanksgiving with their families. But hold on a second. What about the turkey? The bird who leads the Macy's Parade, the bird who's front and center in Norman Rockwell paintings, the bird who gets a presidential pardon every year. And it is my great privilege, well, it's my privilege, actually, uh, let's just say it's my job to grant them clemency this afternoon. As I do, How did the turkey become the national bird of Thanksgiving dinners across the, the country? Professor Burkham so says that, too, is Sarah Hale. She thought turkeys because she was in that part of the world and you'd see a bunch of turkeys around that time of year. Anyone who's been up in uh, New England that time of year, they all are all on the road. People think, OK, they must have eaten turkeys. We have no idea if they ate turkey. We know that the pilgrims clearly ate turkeys. They clearly went out and shot a bunch of wildfowl because it it's easy game and so on. But we don't know if they ate that on the day. And it certainly was not the centerpiece. You know what else wasn't the centerpiece? All the other things on our Thanksgiving table today. So there would not have been potatoes, right? They didn't, they didn't have access to them. Like bread stuffing, highly unlikely because they don't have wheat flour. I mean, pumpkin pie, I mean, they could have probably had Squash. I mean, there absolutely would have been squash there because it's everywhere and that's what they're all going. There would have been beans. There would have been maize or what we call corn. Um, green bean casserole, you know, not a chance. Turkey certain isn't everybody's favorite food, including comedian Jimmy Kimmel. You know, there's a reason we only have turkey once a year. It's not that great. That's the reason. <laughs> I don't need it three times in one week. It's like having a, a tailgate party the day before the Super Bowl. It's, it, it's ridiculous. If I want three turkeys in a row, I'll go to a Matt Damon film festival, okay? He may not like it, but you know what a big, plump turkey is? It's a centerpiece. It's a showstopper, something that's easy to find, doesn't cost too much, and can be enjoyed by a lot of people. And Sarah Hale, the same woman who wrote that letter-writing campaign to President Lincoln, knew that. You're having a big feast. You've got 15, 20 people, all coming cousins, aunts, uncles, and things like that. You know, chicken's not going to cut it. But, you know, turkey's cheap, right? It's cheap. It's big. It's a celebration bird. It looks really cool on the table. It's grand and so on. It's in season. So it's the obvious sort of choice. Today, you'll have no trouble finding turkeys anywhere. Frozen in the supermarket, wild in forests, or raised especially for Thanksgiving on a turkey farm. The idea of the turkey being a central part of the very earliest Thanksgiving feasts is nostalgic and not much more. So like all holidays go, well, you know, why don't we, 
why do we do this? Well, <laughs> it's because these people did it hundreds of years ago and we still remember them today. And, it, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's a nice thought. But not really accurate. What is accurate is that the turkey has been since around the time of the Civil War, the king of the Thanksgiving dinner table. Even if the pilgrims didn't eat it, there's a pretty good chance you will. And now you know why. This is Let's Eat from ABC News Radio. Here's Daria Albinger. And give us this day our daily beer. Yeah, beer. A craft brewery in Britain's using bread to make beer in a more environmentally conscious way. We'll head to London now, where ABC's Tom Rivers learned how they do it. At the Good Company Cafe in Taproom in London. Conversation often turns to A, good beer, and B, saving the planet. Two seemingly incongruous topics. But this is a venue with a difference. It's the headquarters of the Toast Beer Company, a firm that approaches beer making with a very different ethos, one with an eye on doing its part to achieve net zero climate targets. But how, you ask, can a beer producer do that? The story is one out of the what's old is new again file. The seed of the idea, pretty simple. The chief toaster at Toast Beer, Rob Wilson. We actually can't claim the credit for the idea. So it's a mutual friend of ours, Tristram, uh, who's a food waste activist and campaigner. Uh, but the idea itself is uh, thousands of years old. So beer has been brewed using surplus bread for millennia. It's just that it got forgotten during the Industrial Revolution, really. Uh, and we started using pure malted barley. Uh, and we're now looking to bring that back into the mainstream as a more sustainable way of brewing by replacing a third of the malted barley with surplus bread. And an observation a few years back set the wheels in motion. Toast Chief Operating Officer Louisa Zayan. Well, we met a brewer in Brussels who'd paired up with a local bakery and they'd produced a really delicious beer called Babylon, which harks back to the Babylonian days of people preserving the grains, preserving the calories um, within the grains by using the technique of fermentation um, to create what is modern day beer. It would have been more like an alcoholic porridge back in those days. So beer has come a really long way in terms of taste. Um, but yeah, that um, very old um, technique of guarding the foods that we're producing, we're bringing back. As Rob Wilson says, waste not, want not. A third of all the food that we produce in the world is wasted. It's over a billion tons every single year. And then what we uh, sort of find ourselves sadly repeating is that the worst offender is the humble loaf of bread. So in the UK, we waste 44% of the bread that we bake. And a lot of that comes from the sandwich industry. So the end slice, the heel of a loaf, never ends up on a pre-packed sandwich that you're buying in a shop. Uh, and those end slices are at the start of a production line, taken off and chucked into a food waste recycling bin. But a lot of that will end up uh, potentially going to landfill. Some will end up as animal feed. Some will end up going into anaerobic digestion to be turned into energy, whereas it can stay within the human food system by being turned into very delicious beer. So for every pint that we brew, uh, there's about a slice, slice and a half of yesterday's bread in there. 
So, upscaling the idea has been the next hurdle to confront. We have our own master brewer who would uh, be brewing this day in, day out. Uh, I was a keen home brewer, but not the sort of home brewer that was in a garage ready to launch a big uh, new national uh, brewing business. Um, it was really the culmination of a perfect social enterprise solution where we could produce a delicious consumer product tackling a waste issue. We also donate 100% of our profits to environmental charities fighting waste. And so when Louisa, myself and Tristram all cross paths, uh, we realize this is something we just have to take on and have to scale. And like we say, the, the, the technique is not rocket science, brewing science. <laughs> and we uh, have open sourced a lot of what we've done. Uh, we want the world to take this concept and turn it mainstream. We want the brewing industry to return to the common sense that we did once have for thousands of years where local villagers would brew beer uh, by partnering with a local baker. So yeah, if we can bring that back, but at a national scale, uh, that, that's our ambition. And indeed, world domination. You know, We hope to do this on a, <laughs> on a global scale as well. So we've partnered with breweries uh, all over the world to try, and, uh, to try and achieve this. By the numbers, they're doing quite well environmentally. But as they see it, there's much more to do. Louisa Zayan. Our big, hairy, audacious goal is to upcycle one billion slices of surplus bread. Um, to date, we've upcycled three million slices, which if you stack those up, they'd reach about 4.4 times the height of Mount Everest. So if you can picture that, that's a lot of bread, um, but a small amount of the bread that is wasted every single day. Um, so we are looking at other ways, um, both by collaborating directly with brewers and looking at how we can develop ingredients from surplus bread that breweries could buy or the food companies could buy um, and really to shift the needle in terms of the amount of bread um, that we can rescue and prevent going to waste. Um, and the direct impact of that is that by preventing food waste, we are reducing emissions from landfill, but we're also using less barley. And to produce barley, which is the biggest part of the environmental footprint of beer, um, you use a lot of land, you use a lot of energy, a lot of water. Um, and so using less barley means that we take less of nature's natural resources and use what would have otherwise been a waste product instead. And the profits are poured back into community causes. We also work with a variety of different organisations, all within the environmental food space, ranging from uh, food banks within the UK, for example, during COVID and the lockdown, um, we fundraised to provide 46,000 meals for people uh, using food that would have otherwise been wasted because the supply chains of the hospitality companies, um, the restaurants and retailers were, were shut down. Um, and then also we've worked with Rainforest Trust uh, to preserve existing, very biodiverse rainforests. Um, so yes, we need to plant more trees, but we really need to be protecting the trees that we already have um, for carbon and nature purposes. So yeah, a real range of different, different charities um, that we feel that we can support. Having been around now for eight years, the idea as they see it is to export the idea internationally. Our main focus is uh, brewing and growing here in the UK market, but in the US uh, we've proudly brewed 
uh, from east to west coast. We've brewed with Captain Lawrence uh, on the east coast. We've brewed with Lagunitas most recently uh, in California, uh, hoping to do more collaborations across the US market. Uh, our model has been not to export our product. Um, we want to partner with local breweries, uh, partner with local bakeries, tackle local bread waste, support local not-for-profits, local food banks. Uh, that's been our model for growth, and we've brewed from Brazil to the Netherlands to Iceland to South Africa to Singapore, all around the world. And their bread beer model has now been perfected across a wide range of beer and ale types. Yeah, so we're lucky enough to be in the tap room. So you've got a pint of IPA in front of you. I've got a pint of lager uh, here. We have a pale ale, an American pale ale. Uh, we do a low alk lager, but we've brewed uh, everything from your sort of double dry hopped IPAs through to dark stouts. If you're a home brewer, you too can get involved. We do publish a recipe on our website. So if you go to toastbrewing.com, You'll be able to download that and yeah, rescue the breads that you would otherwise go to waste in your own home with your local bakery, get together and be part of the solution. A toast then to an improved environmental future from the team at Toast Beer. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Tom Rivers, ABC News, London. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Let's Eat, a special presentation from ABC News Radio. Here's your host, Daria Albinger. Hungry? We've got a lot on our plate this hour. Coming up, some tips on how to take your holiday baking to the next level. We'll offer you some suggestions for self-care as we head into a busy holiday season and the problem of food deserts and some possible solutions. But first, remember cookbooks, those food-stained guides to better eating? Well, many of them are collecting dust thanks to Instagram and TikTok chefs dispensing culinary counseling. ABC's Andy Field caught up with a few of those 21st century food experts and the people who follow their advice to see just how they're changing how and what we eat. Did you hear that bullet? That was my goddess dressing. I made a second batch. You did? Oh. These sisters are definitely under the influence. Make your own pumpkin puree. This is how you do it. It's very complicated. That was fun. The influence of Baked by Melissa. Take your seeds out. Wee. A very popular TikTok tastemaker who seems to be posting nonstop. I post every single day to TikTok on top of being the CEO of a growing company. <laughs> and I have two small children, but I love it. And anyone can do what I'm doing on TikTok and find success. Nearly 3 million followers devour Melissa Beneshai's easy bake recipes on TikTok and Instagram. She is one of an estimated 36,000 online influencers shaping what you and I buy and eat. I have no professional training. 
I love food and I see baking as arts and crafts and you can eat your projects. And I feel the same way about cooking. I really enjoy the process. And I guess I have a very universal palate because it seems that the things that I love are things that other people love too. And then there's this guy. People told me that once you try grapes like this, you'll never want to eat regular grapes again. Meet Jordan the Stallion. So firstly, you need cotton candy grapes. So I didn't know these were a thing. So now we're going to put lemon and lime juice on these. So next we're gonna cover it with sugar. Pop in the freezer for an hour and then. This doesn't even taste like a Sour Patch Kid, but it tastes like candy. It's so good. Oh. Those are a problem. TikTok's Jordan the Stallion calls himself the president of the Fast Food Secrets Club. He's got nearly 11 million followers clicking in every day to see what hush-hush drive-through ingredients he'll review and then show them how to make it themselves. Oh yeah, that's good. Taco Bell no longer has a hold on me. I can make my own Baja Blast at home. I can make more than one drink with all this stuff here. Both baked by Melissa and Jordan the Stallion, never intended to make their livings helping others decide what to make and eat on TikTok. Prior to social media, I play sports. I was able to make it to Division One baseball. I was getting prepped and ready to be in the 2020 draft. And by the time COVID had hit, everything kind of stopped. I didn't really know what else to do. So Jordan started working part-time fast food jobs and making online videos, which turned into a booming business. As for Melissa? I was an assistant media planner. And this is much more fun than the job you got fired from. Oh my God. I did not like that job. But Melissa loved to bake, started sharing online videos with friends who shared them with other friends, eventually reached millions, and created her own Bake by Melissa empire. My number one goal in doing what I'm doing is continue to build this community of people who come to Baked by Melissa for something, the content that I'm creating. We make people happy one bite at a time. And even though it's not me selling you bite-sized cupcakes, you're intrigued. You're, oh, Baked by Melissa, like what Baked by Melissa? And by the way, we have the best gifts for everyone and anyone And we are so many people's go-to gift. I don't need to give them that spiel. If they want, they'll figure it out on their own or they're already a customer of ours. In fact, sisters Kelly and Mary are letting their cookbooks collect dust and getting most of their cooking advice from Melissa, Jordan, and all the other TikTok and Instagrammers. Changes the way you shop, the way you cook, the everything. Well, when you like them who you're following, you believe them. Yes. Yeah, because they could be like your friend. You know, it's not... Exactly. Mm -hmm. My long-lost friend. Baked by Melissa and Jordan the Stallion say right back at you. I do feel a tremendous responsibility to make sure that I give my audience the respect of, hey, this was really tasty, and I'll tell you why it's tasty. Or... If at some point I'm like, this is not tasty, let them know. My audience is my boss. I have a lot of respect for them and gratitude. And I think that right there just gets me excited when I wake up in the morning. Oh, and Jordan Hewlett's Jordan the Stallion nickname, it's what his baseball colleagues called him. Strong legs, fast runner. You can make pumpkin pancakes. You can make pumpkin muffins. You could just throw this into any baked cake recipe and it's going to be delicious, but you have to blend it or food process it. Baked by Melissa and other food influencers are affecting what the rest of us buy. We don't go to the store without buying shallots, lemons, nutritional yeast, walnuts, yeah, who, cashews. Who, bought nutri- no. who, who used to buy nutritional yeast in the 60s? Our mother did, believe it or not. <laughs> the truth is, these online food influencers 
influencers aren't doing anything new. I'm chopping onions for French onion soup. Julia Child was one of the first mass media influencers back in the 1960s, but she had a professional studio and network to spread her saucy suggestions. University of Michigan marketing professor Marcus Collins says anyone can now do it with a smartphone camera, and that's not always a good thing. Things could get a million likes and it not be valuable or may not be legit. But if we see a lot of people like it, then we tend to trust it because we trust people. Or healthy. Or healthy, exactly. And if the rest of us get a lot out of those inventive recipes, Jordan and Melissa say they get so much more back. The most touching comments I get are the are the ones from people who tell me that I've changed the way they eat and I've changed their lives, I've changed their family's lives. They love vegetables now. They've lost weight without even trying. They had illnesses or ailments that they didn't go on medicines for, but just by choosing to eat the recipes that I'm posting, they're doing better. Like, whoa. Sisters Kelly and Mary can't wait for their next TikTok. And I made a second batch. You did? <laughs> yeah, now, to I, use it up because Kelly told me the basil would go bad. So I forgot to, to get this. I forgot to buy spinach. So I used arugula from the uh, organic arugula. market. And that I think that's turned out well. I haven't tasted it yet. Stuck somewhere in the Instagram TikTok vortex. I'm Andy Field, ABC News. I know my way around a kitchen, and pretty well, I think. You see, cooking is a way that I show people I care about them. My Chili Verde gets rave reviews, so does my chicken tortilla soup and my lasagna. And when it comes to holidays like Thanksgiving, my husband and I never shy away from saying, hey, we'll host, just bring yourselves. Notice I said cooking. When it comes to baking, I leave that to the pros, and for good reason. It scares the puff pastry right out of me. But now I'm learning it doesn't have to. The reason that people get nervous about baking is only because they don't have practice the way that they practice their cooking every single day. You know, you have to cook every day. Everybody has to eat. You have to feed your family. You have to cook. But baking is really just a sometimes thing for most people. So I think that the anxiety that's wrapped around baking is mostly just a little bit of unknown because of less practice. That's my new friend, Samantha Senevaratna. She's a pastry chef and an award-winning cookbook author. I wanted to be a baker since I was a little tiny kid. I think it's more of a compulsion than anything else. I've always just wanted to be working with butter and sugar. But her journey from amateur baker to pro had a lot of twists and turns. I went to college. I studied Spanish and uh, Latin American studies was my major. And then I worked in public television after I graduated from college and then went to culinary school. So it, t it took me some years to figure it out. And then it took a little while to figure out exactly how I was going to cook for a living. Her latest book is called Bake Smart. It just came out and it's full of tips on getting over that fear. And she told me, I have nothing to worry about. If you just are joyful and full of love and you are just sharing something you made with somebody, whatever the outcome is, it's going to be okay. With that, Sam tossed me an apron and welcomed me into her cozy Brooklyn brownstone kitchen, where we were going to make a caramel pear cobbler together. I'm gonna melt the butter. Okay. Over here. You can do this in the microwave, obviously, yeah. but I'm just doing it on the stove. What else do we have to do? We're gonna wait for the pears, but we can mix the batter together, so that's... Is that thing full of sea salt? 
Which thing? The Malden sea salt. That, is that this called, one? That yeah. is serious salt. <laughs> wow. It's a lot of Malden. I know. Uh, yeah. Wow. Okay, that's the first bit of advice. Don't get distracted. I know you got to stay on point, but I got to tell you, that thing of salt was the size of a paint can. Anyway, I digress. But I did want to know if I really have to, say, read the whole recipe through before I started. You see, I've always taken it step by step. You get about a third of the way through, and then you realize I don't have buttermilk or cream of tartar or fresh nutmeg or something else that is absolutely essential to the recipe. If you're on a time crunch of any kind, it's a good idea to read through. You know, you want to be aware if there's a two-hour rest of a dough or something like that. So it is a good idea to read it all the way through. But again, if you don't, is it going to be the end of the world? No. It may not be the end of the world for her, but from now on, I'll be reading the recipe through before I start completely. Then we started cooking. First thing Sam did was get out a device that I had never thought to buy. A kitchen scale is a good thing to invest in, right? I think a kitchen scale is very useful. It also makes measuring very easy. Because mm-hmm. if you think about it, instead of having to measure flour cup by cup, you just put a bowl on a scale and dump it in. And then you can dump all your things in there. Just tear it in between each one. Makes it a lot easier. And speaking of measuring? If you want perfect results, I would recommend measuring, especially when it comes to things like flour, butter, leavener, you know, all your all your structural ingredients, all your all your bones. You want that stuff to be really pretty accurate in order to ensure a perfect result. If you want to take some liberties with things like nuts, vanilla, even salt, spices, things like that, I think you can absolutely measure a little bit more loosey-goosey. And with that, I feel a lot better about baking because, like a lot of people, I've always thought that cooking is an art and baking is a science, and I'm terrible at science. But Sam doesn't agree. Cooking is also a science, and I think that baking is also an art. I think they're both, both. Then Sam assigned me a simple task, or at least I thought it was simple, slicing the pears, and I asked her about precision. A lot of recipes, you know, when they're handed down from, you know, parent to child, grandparent to child, Mm -hmm. it'll say... A handful of this. Sure. Eyeball this. But, uh, you know, a handful. How much is a handful? Well, you know, in baking, I don't think people really write. Well, that's not true, actually. Because I have an old copy of the um, Joy Joy of Cooking. Uh And those recipes are so short. They're beautifully short. It's just like, well, mix together the batter and cook it, essentially, is the whole recipe. So we've come away from that. I think with baking recipes, people do that less. But I, there are places where you can absolutely improvise. I don't measure when I'm doing nuts or chocolate or spices or vanilla. We're talking <laughs> about vanilla. Um, it should be natural, pure vanilla, right? Not imitation vanilla. I think there's a place for imitation vanilla. I almost bought that. Yeah, because it tastes good. Yeah. I think it tastes good. I think if you're making, you know, a a sprinkle cake or something like that, the taste of imitation vanilla is kind of nostalgic and sort Mm -hmm. of tastes like those box mixes we all grew up Mm -hmm. with. So I think there's a place for it. But I, generally speaking, use pure vanilla extract. Note to self, buy pure vanilla extract and don't drink it, no matter how good it tastes. And that brings me to the next question. Where do you splurge on ingredients and where can you save? I think splurging on things like chocolate or vanilla or spices. I think that's a good place to spend a little extra money on the good stuff. 
I think when it comes to those structural ingredients again, like the flour, the sugar, those are the things I think you can get away with getting sort of the whatever's on sale will work. Butter, I would spend money on butter too. And speaking of butter, here's something that you can do when you need softened butter and you realize it's still in the fridge. Stand the sticks upright and then microwave them for a few seconds and then flip them over again. And do that a few times. Within about, you know, 20 seconds, 25 seconds, you'll have nice softened butter. I know I'm going to lean on that one a lot. Here's another tip. Know your oven. You know what? The easiest thing to do is just get an oven thermometer. They're really cheap. You can get them at the kitchen supply store or, you know, Sur La Table or something like that. And throw it in your oven just so you know where you're at. Because if your oven is 25 degrees off, you should know that. And then be able to adjust and bake things longer or whatever, up the temperature a little bit. They also can have hot spots, so it's important to know that so that you can rotate your cookies. I, my oven, I don't even rotate things when I put them in because it's, it's even enough. While we waited on the cobbler to come out of the oven, Sam and I talked about her new book. It's called Bake Smart Sweets and Secrets from My Oven to Yours, and I think that really tells you exactly what it is. It's sweets. My version of sweets are knowable, accessible baked goods with a little bit of a twist. So that's what's in there. And then the secrets, basically, I think that people are intimidated by baking only because they don't have time to practice. So I've done all the practicing. I've been practicing for years and years. I've worked for a lot of different publications and television shows and whatnot. And so I've learned a lot of things, a lot of little ways to make things easier, a lot of ways to teach and reassure you and hopefully give you some hacks that make your life a little bit easier in the kitchen. But it may not include her very favorite recipe of all. I just love a perfect chocolate chip cookie. A perfect, you know, crisp edges, soft middle, deep caramelized flavor, really good chocolate, a little bit salty, nice butter, the perfect chocolate chip cookie. And then after we sampled the finished product, I made Sam a promise to bake my way through the book. All of this talk about baking got me wondering about the most popular desserts for Thanksgiving. Well, the people at allrecipes.com recently did a top 10 list. Sweet potato pie, a Southern tradition, comes in at number 10. Numbers 7, 8, and 9, all cheesecakes, pumpkin, marble, and traditional. Numbers 4, 5, and 6, cakes, pumpkin roll with cream filling, pumpkin cake, and apple cake. And it's pies for the win, place, and show. Pumpkin, apple, and pecan. So what's going to be on your table? It's Let's Eat, a special presentation from ABC News Radio. Thanksgiving is the gateway to the holidays, which means joy. But for many, it can also increase stress and pressure. ABC's Michelle Franzen sat down with ABC's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton, to talk about the importance of self-care, especially this time of year. Thanksgiving is typically the most popular of the holidays, and when you ask people why... Uh, it's a good day to eat turkey and uh, watch football. That's, that's really what I do. That one free holiday throughout the year where there's not a lot of expectations. What is it about Thanksgiving that just makes it so carefree in a way for many? Well, no presents like Christmas and it brings your families together. Gratitude is the main dish along with that turkey on display. It's the food and the gathering. Yeah, the gathering. Especially with what's going on now globally. 
people want to come together and be together. But there are still pressures that come with the holidays. Gatherings can put a spotlight on emotional, economic, and family dynamics. You know, you kind of want to just focus on each other and avoid the things that may cause a little bit of intensity. ABC's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton, is here to talk about the ups and downs the holiday season can usher in. We can all feel that during this time of the holidays. So how can we get the most out of this holiday? Is it being present? Is that what's important? I think that's a good place to start. And listen, I can relate to all of those things. (laughs) I, I think most people can. And I've spent a lot of time over the last six to 10 years uh, speaking to our therapist, my family's therapist, uh, and other mental health professionals about not just how to navigate this particular holiday, of course, but holiday season in general or family gatherings or big events that a lot of times are good, but that doesn't mean all good or only good. There's a concept called multiple truths. <laughs> so you can be grateful and stressed. You can be happy to see your friends and family and dread seeing some people. So that concept of multiple truths is very real in the world of mental health and psychology. And we have to remember that, you know, everyone brings their own last 12 months to the dinner table or Thanksgiving table, whatever time you're sitting down. And there's not always all rosy things that have happened in that 12 months, right? To most people, it's a combination of good things and not so good things. It is. But there's a lot of social and political turmoil that's also playing out. Economic concerns throughout the U.S. also. So what are the do's and the don'ts of gathering and how can we stop the car, so to speak, if conversations start getting heated? If you feel in the moment that things are getting heated or you're getting emotional or triggered, you can press the pause button. You can say, you know what? I'm going to excuse myself. I have to make a call. You know, it doesn't have to be honest. More potatoes. Yeah, you know, you can take a walk around the block or you can just go into a different room, do some deep breathing or or just, just take five minutes to remove yourself from that situation. If you know there are people in your family that are of different politics, I know I have it in my family. We don't bring up politics anymore at all, anytime. It's definitely better to stay away from the conversations. But at the same time, I like having those open conversations with like my family and having those discussions. Uh, the other one, which is more actually in the medical nutritional realm than the necessarily uh, mental health realm, but they're connected, is watch the alcohol intake that can really cause things to go off the tracks. And some people won't get a chance to gather or they won't have the feast that other families and people will have. Feeding America and the yearly report shows that hunger in the U.S. remains an urgent crisis, they call it, despite making some progress during the pandemic. Feeding America highlights that more than 44 million people in the U.S. face hunger. One in five children What can people do to get beyond those numbers and help others during this time of need as well? Well, I think the first thing that we can all do is recognize and acknowledge and appreciate that when you hear statistics like that, get rid of the preconceived image of what you think or who you think that person is in your mind. 
that person looks just like you, looks just like me, looks just at like the person listening could be to us neighbors. right now, could be your neighbor, could be your coworker, could be your child's classmate in school. This is not the type of thing that people are walking around holding a sign saying, I'm hungry or I'm suffering from food insecurity. It is so common. You have to assume and presume that it is everyone around us um, and that they are, are living with that in plain sight, number one. Number two, most people think of the hungry on Thanksgiving. Uh, and a lot of times, you know, my family and I have helped prepare a meal at a soup kitchen on Thanksgiving. But we've also gone back on other days of the year. Yeah, these needs, these statistics right. are year round. They're 365 days a year. They don't just occur on holidays. And I think we do need to remember how lucky we actually are to have a meal of any kind. And and when you talk about then sharing one with friends and, and relatives and, you know, doesn't get much better than that. We've seen a lot of businesses also step up, not just with donations when it comes to this, but also about closing stores on Thanksgiving. We've heard Target CEO recently announced that he's making it part of the permanent policy, the standard, after he said he talked to employees and they found that they really appreciated having this time with family and friends during this time. It seems like we call it a trend sometimes, but is the U.S. kind of getting back to its roots also? And how important is that with the gratitude? Well, I I actually have slightly mixed feelings about that because as a doctor, there were many, many, many holidays that I volunteered to work and take that shift. There are a lot of professions and businesses that can never close, and therefore people need to work on holidays. Many people, I would assume, would rather not, but some people actually would prefer to do that. They feel that that's one way that they can give back and doing something for someone else. So I don't think it has to be an all or none situation. But to be clear, you know, especially in in healthcare, people are working in hospitals 365 days a year. And we've gotten quite good at making uh, our work in hospital friends and family, our, our holiday friends and family. That friends giving the co-workers as well. Dr. Jen, thank you so much. Thanks for having me and happy holidays. Happy holidays. Just a few tips to help us as we start to gather for the holiday season. This is Let's Eat from ABC News Radio. Here's Daria Albinger. Families across the country will sit down to a home-cooked meal this Thanksgiving with all of the trimmings. But for some, getting everything on the table will be a struggle. They're among the millions of Americans who live in food deserts where access to affordable grocery stores and fresh ingredients is limited. ABC's Derek Dennis looks into the problem and learns of some possible solutions. $331. 53-year-old Robert Brown of Newark, New Jersey, makes the trek to this ShopRite supermarket in the heart of the state's largest city on a fixed income, without a car, two miles away from home. His cart filled with bag after bag of groceries, nothing extra. Oh, no. Oh, no. I couldn't carry this, right? I couldn't even, I, I would have tried to get on the bus with this. But it would be too much. 45-year-old Katrina Mosley does the same, only her trip to ShopRite, also two miles away but in a different direction, is her second of the day. I started at 8 o'clock this morning. I wasn't went to Walmart and got back home like 11.30, rest for a little bit, 
caught the bus like let me see what time it's 309 i got here like 12 something take about 12 one something shop i take my time in the store to go through stuff and then i was just waiting for transportation to go home that's a a trek right you go yeah, to it is different stores. and yeah and me i don't drive um i have to call like family members that does drive um they take me gas money is very expensive no car, no other supermarket option nearby, depending on two different bus lines, then taxis, then relatives to pick her up. The entire day, her day off from work, spent just trying to feed her family of four, including a daughter with a baby on the way. So I go to Walmart to get the bulk of the meat because it lasts, you can make, uh, one of their packets of meat, you can make like two to three meals out of it. It all depends on how you do it. Las Vegas, Nevada, home of the gambling mecca known as the Strip, is the 25th most populated city in the U.S. It's in the desert and in more ways than one. It, it is very inconvenient if you have to go to three different stores just to, to get the prices that you wanted. Joy is a casino worker who lives just outside of Vegas in the greater Clark County area and says she not only commutes to work in one of the hotels on the Strip, she commutes just to get groceries. Do you have to take a taxi or a bus or do you drive? I drive. You drive. Mm -hmm. I met her at a Vaughn's supermarket on the outskirts of the city. She says it's about five miles from where she lives, one of a few stores she goes to just to get the most bang for her hard-earned buck. This this store has more expense, it's more expensive, but they have some sale items, so I go there for their sale items, then I go to another store because their price is lesser. And then I go to another store, so it depends on what I'm getting. What she's getting is the runaround because she lives in a food desert defined by the USDA as an area where at least 33% of the population lives more than one mile from a supermarket or large grocery store, 10 miles in a rural area. A professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, published a study in 2020 and found there are 40 identified food deserts in the state, 16 of them in Clark County, and 10 are in Las Vegas proper. Food deserts in the desert. So the outskirts of Las Vegas, I know from colleagues who work out there, um, it actually is considered pretty rural. Uh, if you're not like in Las Vegas proper, but like in the outskirts, in the suburbs, uh, it can be considered very rural. Dr. Imran Ali is an internist who says he sees the effects of food deserts every day, calling it a public health issue, hard to get fresh foods, creating a reliance on fast food for low-income people, the elderly, or the sedentary. We are actually now screening people when we admit them, we actually enter into our medical record, you know, if they have these kind of risk factors that put them at a higher risk for obesity, malnutrition, frankly. And it's not their fault. I mean, I don't blame them. It's just because they live in a zip code that makes it difficult for them to access nutritional food. Dr. Ali says for patients he's seeing who are diabetic with high blood pressure, high cholesterol and obesity, it's a matter of life and death. They're not getting enough blood flow to the vital organs and their cholesterol levels are through the roof. They have neglected their diet completely when it comes to processed foods and not watching their diabetes. In New Jersey, state officials are coming to the rescue. A food desert is traditionally defined in a fairly rigid way um, in that it means it's an area where there isn't access to fresh or healthy produce. 
Tara Colton is executive vice president for economic security for New Jersey's Economic Development Authority. She says addressing food deserts, a nationwide problem that studies show has been born out of structural racism, neighborhood redlining and disinvestment, isn't as simple as you'd think. You can live next door to the most amazing farmer's market or supermarket, but if you can't afford to buy the food that's in there or they don't accept federal nutrition programs like SNAP, then it's it's inaccessible to you. Add to that limited or unreliable transportation options. You're in New Jersey and you have to take a bus that never shows up or you have to walk under two highway underpasses with kids in the rain. It may as well be 100 miles away. And then there's pricing, a definite factor for Robert Brown. I live like 20 blocks away, but we have a store downstairs where I live at. But they're so high, I come here and it's no need of me spending my money there. And I'm getting a little bit of nothing when I could come here and get everything I need. So what's a smart but geographically challenged shopper to do? New Jersey and other states are coming up with solutions. Governor Murphy signed the Food Desert Relief Act into law, and it essentially gives the New Jersey EDA uh, close to a quarter of a billion dollars, with a B, in resources to deploy to both try and address food insecurity and alleviate food deserts. The money is for tax breaks for stores that open in underserved areas, grants and loans and other assistance for stores of all kinds to operate in food deserts. I often say it isn't just about bringing people to food, it's about bringing food to people. And there's lots of different ways you can do that. They can go into a big building and buy it and put it in the trunk of a car or carry it on a bus, but you can also bring it to, to them more centrally. Think of community food pantries, or better yet, a $2 million pilot project in New Jersey that's become a $45 million state program that pays local restaurants to deliver ready-to-eat meals directly to those in need. Colton says dollar for dollar, it's a win. That $1 you're spending is keeping the restaurant open, the workers employed, and is giving people who often can't access this kind of food, a healthy, fresh, nutritious, homemade meal. But Katrina Mosley prefers to cook on her own. And despite her bi-weekly all-day odyssey to two different supermarkets to get the groceries she needs and can afford, she doesn't focus on feeling disenfranchised. Her family is her real focus. Those who I got to worry about. Mm-hmm. So this is what I do for them. Shop. Mm-hmm. Getting it done. Out the way. You can help fight hunger in your own community by donating to a food bank or volunteering your time. You can even do that from home as some food banks have moved their shifts online, asking volunteers to help fundraise and spread awareness. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though... It's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. 
people who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. It's Let's Eat, a special presentation from ABC News Radio. Here's your host, Daria Albinger. Hey, happy Thanksgiving. You know, when it comes to an American meal, you really don't get more American than a diner. Whether it's a short stack and bacon at breakfast or a grilled cheese with burned fries at three in the morning after you've been out all night, it's truly an American experience. And you don't find a more American diner than you do in New Jersey. Like the Bendix Diner, that's where we are right now. It's in Hasbrook Heights. You can find just about anything you want at a diner on this menu, but it isn't the most intriguing thing about this restaurant. That would have to be the owner's son. And to describe him as inspirational, well, that is truly an understatement. John Diakakis always wanted to be a comedian. And since his parents owned a diner, he figured it was a good place to perfect the routine. When you get out of college and all your you know, aspirations are just to get on stage and make people laugh, it was a good way at the overnight that I can just make fun of people, crack some jokes, work on my routine and just uh, hustle food. But then, well, life happened. You meet a girl, you have children, the hell with the stand-up comedy, are paying down on a mortgage and so forth and so on. So John put the comedy career on the back burner and took over running the family restaurant. Bendix Diner was probably built in 1945. It was started with the Den Lorenzo family, a brother of five or six. One did accounting, one did baking, one some short order cooks, a night guy, you know, to have it 24 hours. They worked it for 38 years. Uh, a Greek family bought it. My parents bought it from them. And now my family's had it, if I did the math right, about 38 years. So now John does his routine while he waits tables, combining balance, precision, and organization while maintaining a biting sense of humor. He also manages the crew, which includes Julio, the chef, and his sons, Demetrios and Michael. Now, if you've ever worked in food service, you'll know it is not an easy job. And that's when you realize John isn't your average diner waiter. You're blind. How do you do this? I have two legs. Has anybody ever told you, you can't do this? Well, when someone makes, you know, assumptions like, hey, you're blind, you can't bring two coffees to the table, you just want to prove them wrong. I've done quite okay for myself, and even I think also my children have done well for themselves, so now they've been able to use a little bit of the technology, you know, so it's an evolution that just keeps going regardless of how the old immigrants might have wanted certain things to be a certain way. John has retinitis pigmentosa. He had limited vision as a child. By the time he reached adulthood, though, he was completely blind. Not only do you run the place, but you wait tables. Yes. And you do it very well. What I hear from people is just, you know, when I get the, you're so amazing and I can't believe what I just saw. Uh, that's better than gratuities to me. I'm sure you probably also get the comments that you wish you didn't get, that they people probably don't think that you heard them say, right? 
oh yeah, I over eavesdrop. And if just some people would say certain things like, oh my God, we're going to have a blind person. And okay, I'm thinking of getting the corned beef hash. I said, yeah, you didn't want this blind person, but I think you're going to order corned beef hash and so forth and so on. So you can completely flip the tables. As he was telling me that, John delivered a grilled cheese with bacon and well-done fries. That's the only way to order them, by the way to my seat at the counter. Something that's getting harder and harder to find. Diners seem to be becoming less common across the country. Why do you think that is? You know, corporate America decided that, hey, there's a lot more money for food service if we do it this way with door dashes and Uber Eats and take almost the the family and the conversation out of it. It's um, more than the meal, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. more than the cooking. And look, a guy came here and, hey, I missed this. My father used to take me to a place like this in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where you could say what you want. And so there you go. You lose some of the realness of just the everyday person that comes in. John says he's encouraged by an effort to preserve diners. And he had this advice for our producer, Dana Schaefer, who's hoping to save one in her New Jersey hometown. Keep it simple, because I think if you get good food and quick and prompt service and people are just happy with the product that you give, it really doesn't matter what it looks like. We asked Dana, what's driving her? I would walk past it with my mom and dad every day. As I got older and I always just wanted to open it up, I saw the old menu that was still on the ceiling or on the wall. I want to open it up and then have that menu still up there as like a throwback menu one day. As I polished off every bit of my sandwich and fries, Dana had a BLT and onion rings. John's son, Michael, sat a slice of cheesecake in front of Dana and some baklava for me. So he wanted to see because I'm part Greek and part Middle Eastern if it was as good as my mom's. What should you order at a diner and what should you not order? Okay, I'm going to tell you what you should order and okay. I'm going to have Michael tell you what. Right, Michael, you'll play this game with me? Okay. Okay. So if you're in breakfast, definitely, you know, the corned beef hash and eggs and pancakes and omelets and the home fries here are to die for. We have the charbroiler in the back for good burgers and steak and eggs. And you can't go wrong being that it's Greek owned for a gyro. You oh, wait, wait, wait. I got there. Okay, oh I know my I got God. it. But you just I am hurt a my ears nerd. with oh, that. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, like you, you know, can call it a gyro. It's I'll fine. call it I'm a teasing. gyro. I'm okay. <laughs> and you know, when people ask me if you are gyro, they want. I go, do you want feta in it? Because that's the way I eat it. Yes, that that's the way I eat, eat it, too. it too. Now, Michael, what should you not order at a diner? Fish. Ooh. Fish and anything that you would normally think would probably be canned. In a diner, order what makes you happy. Don't come in 15 minutes before it closes and want a chicken parmesan that's cooked to order. And we have that guy, too. How long are you going to do this? I want to quit tomorrow. Do you really? <laughs> I don't mind doing it for another couple of years, but, you know, the hassle of the day becomes a little harder. My organization in my mind is still, I feel like it's still right there. I have a little more of a temper. I have a little bit of a shorter fuse. So I've actually dumped glasses of water on people like two or three in the last year. And they still paid their tab, so. Did you get a tip? Um... I think they tip Julio. If you've never been to a diner, well, you are really missing out. And not just on a great meal, 
at a great price, but a genuine slice of Americana. You can get a taste of it at any one of the more than 8,600 diners across the country. I know John suggests the gyro. I say get a patty melt with a side of fries. Well done. When disaster or war unfold around the globe, there's one name that we hear again and again when it comes to the humanitarian response. Chef Jose Andres, the founder of World Central Kitchen. And his food? It isn't bologna sandwiches. It's delicious, and it's culturally appropriate to the population being fed. ABC's Alex Stone spent the last year reporting on the efforts of Andres and World Central Kitchen, including visiting teams on the ground in a disaster zone. If you've been to Maui or any of the Hawaiian Islands, you know the feeling when you step off the plane. It's a unique sense of calm. Tropical birds chirping, the music of the island, and the warm welcome of the Hawaiian culture. But life on Maui abruptly changed on August 8th. when strong wind brought fire into multiple communities and wiped out the town of Lahaina, burning it to the ground. Then it was just really apocalyptic. Everything familiar to the people of the island was immediately unfamiliar. The comforts of home were gone. The devastation is so complete that you see metals twisted in ways that you can't imagine. And you see nothing uh, from organic structures left whatsoever. But within only a few hours of the flames burning, trucks and cars were rolling in to feed those who no longer had any way to feed themselves. Not an easy feat on an island with limited resources and limited available vehicles. The arriving army was from World Central Kitchen. Good, I'm eating done. salt. Bruce, good to meet you. How you doing? I'm Alex, ABC Radio. Nice to meet you. Where I got to see them firsthand, creating their life-saving magic. We just got butternut squash, Okinawan potatoes, kabocha squash, uh, pumpkins, and we're, you know, we're just processing everything that's coming to us, cooking it all off and trying to get it out to everybody as fast and as fresh as we can. Bruce Bromberg is an accomplished chef known around the Hawaiian Islands who came here to cook for the victims. But we're doing kalo pork stew, we're doing fish curries, we've done teriyaki meatballs, we're doing a lot of vegetarian, you know, roast vegetables from everything from the farm. World Central Kitchen is a brainchild of famed chef Jose Andres, the owner of top restaurants around the world who created the nonprofit to do what governments often fail to do, to get in quickly and make high quality, good tasting food in disaster and war zones. I sat down with Andres last year and he told me, Food is always an afterthought, even when we hear our leaders saying that they preposition food. Well, if the food doesn't reach the people, you can have all the food you want. Some people have too much and others are receiving nothing. That's number one. In an emergency, you need food and water with the urgency of yesterday. You cannot just drop it one day and disappear. You have to keep going back every day. You need to adapt. You need to use the local resources like we do. Which, with the knives cutting, is exactly what World Central Kitchen did, calling in Hawaii's top chefs who typically do dinner service at fine dining restaurants to cook high-end, good-tasting food in mass for the people of Maui to give them multiple hot meals every day, bringing the food to them in shelters and even at their homes if they decided not to evacuate. This is a pork guisantes. is a classic family dish that 
dad is actually well known in the community making so it's pretty cool that that he's making it uh, today. That's Sheldon Simeon, a famed Hawaiian chef. He's a social media star as well. He showed up at this community college kitchen to help out in the effort, along with his dad, who wanted to help him cook. We're cooking 10,000 meals a day, so when I'm thinking it's not this perfect piece of steak that, or this perfect piece of fish for this one person, we're cooking in batches of 3,000 portions, or hundreds of pounds of protein, hundreds of pounds of, uh, of vegetables that need to be prepped, and that's day in, three meals day out and uh, it's a lot a lot going on. It is a lot of work but the meals look like they've come out of a restaurant because they were cooked yes in mass but by fine dining chefs and sent out to feed those who are suffering. In fact the food is so good based on what they've made in places like Maui, Puerto Rico, Ukraine, Israel. World Central Kitchen has now created a hardcover cookbook of its best disaster recipes. World Central Kitchen's specialty is chef prepared dishes inspired by local cuisine and, and things that people really want to eat. Like you said, in disasters, that can so often think of, of just food that's quick and easy, but that's not the World Central Kitchen way. And so they thought, why not make a book of the best recipes so they can be made at home? Sammy Higgins is director of content at World Central Kitchen. To be honest, people have asked us for it. Uh, it kind of just it came together as not just a way to share the recipes and the food that we're cooking, but a way to share the stories of the people that the people behind the meals and the communities that we met. Every recipe in the book has a story about where that dish was made and when the disaster or conflict it was needed in to heal souls, broken into chapters where the food fits. In the chapter titled Empathy, it's braised pork al pastor. In urgency, it's tamales. In hope, it's turkey bolognese. In joy, it's lemon olive oil cake. It captures the, the stories and that that is the words, that is the imagery, and that is the food. It's kind of three-part. Um, so when you make a dish, you're going to read about where WCK cooked it and whose dish it is and the story behind that, that response and, like I said, the community that we were serving. You're going to see photos of, of WCK in action and of the communities serving um, and people receiving meals. And WCK is so fortunate to have so many incredible supporters around the world and many Many people will never be able to go as, as much as people want to volunteer with us. There just always isn't the opportunity. Um, and so this is, is a way that we're hoping to really bring people in to feel, feel the warmth and the hope that comes from our work. I'm looking right now. Chicken chili verde looks amazing. I, I want to make this now. The, it just looks so good. And maybe it's because I'm in California and you serve it to wildland firefighters and kind of the, the history of it going out to fire crews who are out there, but it looks so good. What are some of the dishes that, as you've either eaten them or seen them in the, the cookbook, that, that you've said, wow, I want to do that? As a as a storyteller, the stories are, I can't separate the stories from the recipes. They're, they're so critical to me. So some of the dishes that I, I look back and just warm my heart, um, all the dishes enjoy just really... Like I said, it's hard. It's sometimes hard to picture joy in disasters, but humans are amazing and, and, and people find ways to celebrate even in the toughest of moments. So those recipes are some of my favorite. We have done so much work in Ukraine for the, for the past more than year and a half. Um, and the Ukrainian spirit is so incredible and I'm continually inspired by our team there. Um, so the borscht recipe that is in the Hope chapter that is just a warm, comforting soup, um, 
that we served, especially in the early days of the invasion. It was February, March. It was incredibly cold. Um, and and people, people, when they realized that you had this warm, comforting meal that was familiar and that, that felt like home, it, it's such a beautiful thing. Are there flavors that are in this book that bring you back to a disaster? where you taste it and and it brings you back? I mean, I would say borscht for sure um, does. I think that there are some recipes in here that are that are kind of World Central Kitchen staples. Turkey bolognese, we make a lot of places. Pasta is generally universally comforting to people. And and you can make it in, in various ways. You can use whatever veggies you have. You can use whatever protein you have. You can do no protein. Like I said, it just takes me back to the warmth of the people we've met. It's that hope and warmth I could feel in the kitchen in Maui. Chefs and others who could not open their own restaurants during the wildfire, but wanted to make food for the island. We do have relatives that lost their home, family, friends that have passed away. And, uh, you know, this is our way to, to, I don't know, to kind of just do our part and just, I don't even know how to deal with that later. We'll deal with that later. amazing what you're doing. Everyone's just taking care of everybody else. And everyone's hurting, everyone's got a story, everyone's got significant issues, but this is an amazing thing. The World Central Kitchen Cookbook is available most places books are sold. It's already a New York Times bestseller. The proceeds go to fund World Central Kitchen operations around the globe. You're listening to Let's Eat from ABC News Radio. Once again, here's Daria Albinger. That turkey's going to have some competition at many southern tables this Thanksgiving with macaroni and cheese, okra, and corn pudding fighting for space among the sides. And there's a good bet you'll find some barbecue, too. But what kind depends on where you'll be eating. ABC's Jim Ryan tackles the fierce debate on where you'll find the best barbecue. But first, a little history. When Christopher Columbus sailed through the Bahamas in 1492, he found an indigenous people, the Taino, roasting meat on a framework of sticks over a fire. The Spaniards called that framework a barbacoa. The cooking method would survive the centuries, the word barbacoa morphing into barbecue, as immortalized in the Barbecue Song by Rhett and Link. This is our review of barbecue. 531 years after Columbus discovered barbacoa, sales of barbecue grills in the U.S. reached nearly $2.5 billion last year. That's a lot of Americans doing a lot of grilling. But styles and types of barbecue vary widely across the United States. Melissa Cookston is a seven-time world barbecue champion. In the Memphis market, we love our pork, and we cook it to a high enough internal temperature that we can pull it which means we've rendered all the fat and um, gotten it to a, a perfectly tender texture, but it, it's nice, pulled, clean meat. Joe Pierce owns Slaps Barbecue in Kansas City, where... Kansas City Barbecue is just, what I like to call it, is well-rounded. We do everything well, from chicken all the way to mutton. And then there's Jalen Hurd, the owner of Goldie's Barbecue, just outside Fort Worth, Texas, Cowtown. Probably our more emphasis on cooking briskets. Uh, that's one big thing that Texas, that's what we're really known for. Everybody always says uh, beef is king out here, so brisket is king. As those three master barbecue chefs feed the devotees who line up every lunch hour, their distinct styles of cooking are feeding a fiery debate over which style is best, Memphis, Kansas City, or Texas. 
in Memphis. We're like the pork capital of the world. So you'll find plenty of pork shoulder, spare ribs, and ham hocks in her cooking and her cookbooks. Well, there's certain secrets that I don't mind giving away, and then there's certain secrets that will go with me to my grave. Up in Kansas City, says Joe Pierce. Memphis is really similar to the same type of rub we use, but they don't sauce anything. And so their barbecue tends to be a little drier. Uh-oh. There's a huge misconception in the Memphis area that um, we like our ribs dry. Cookston says that just isn't true. In Memphis, we love our sauce. But what we do is uh, we will take our slab of ribs, um, put the sauce on it, put it back in the smoker, and let that sauce set for about five minutes. So it's not dripping off the ribs, if that makes sense. It's it's set into the ribs, but it's still considered a, a wet barbecue. Much of the great debate in the barbecue world is about variety. When Joe Pierce thinks about Texas, Memphis, and his own Kansas City. I'm not going to say some of those other regions aren't just a little specific in what they cook, but when you think of Texas, you think of brisket. When you think of Memphis, you think of ribs. When you think of the Carolinas, you think of pork. And when you think of Kansas City, you think of all of it. You think of ribs and burn-ins and brisket and chicken and turkey and sausage and burgers and tacos and everything in between that we can make barbecue. Melissa Cookston insists the same could be said of Memphis barbecue. We pull the vinegar from Carolina. We pull the sweet from Kansas City. We pull the salt and pepper and a little bit of heat from Texas. So Memphis is really the only full flavor profile that you're going to get in barbecue. That's the the utopian bite, something you can taste from the tip of your tongue to the back of your throat and um, appreciate all elements on the on the palate. Kansas City is uh, kind of this melting pot and this eclectic place where you can cook any type of food you want and put it on a smoker and we can call it barbecue. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Standing beside a smoker and wearing an apron, Jalen Hurd reflects on his search for the best of all flavors. Before we opened up, we'd always go on what we call barbecue crawls where we'd hit up maybe like five places in a day, see what other people are doing, see how we can do stuff differently, take some things from a place we like, and then, yeah, pretty much that way. Just eating a lot of barbecue, cooking a lot of barbecue is really the only way to get good at it. The secret to his food's unique Texas taste? We use all post oak around here. Usually in Central Texas you're going to use post oak. Um, it's different in different regions, but uh, that's what we use here. And our smokers, it tastes different from like hickory or pecan and stuff like that for sure. Barbecue chefs, like their customers, are fiercely loyal. Jalen Hurd's Goldie's Barbecue is miles from a main highway, sitting next to a junkyard off a country road. People travel for barbecue. Um, there's a lot of places in the middle of nowhere that have lines like this. So um, that's one thing we were looking for. Also, we did this without investors too, so we needed something pretty cheap. Uh, I opened up with four of my best friends from elementary. So Memphis has its pork, Texas its brisket. But Joe Pierce of Slaps Barbecue in Kansas City says, Good food is good food. I can go to a mom and pop shop that's been around for 100 years in Texas and find great food. And I can come to the biggest chain in Kansas City, Memphis, and find good food. But if I had to pick um, one, I would I would probably obviously pick Kansas City because you get so many different varieties of barbecue in our area. It's not just one style of food. But feet to a mesquite season fire? Of course, I'm going to pick the hometown of Kansas City. Barbecue is, is the best and the favorite for me. As for Melissa Cookston. When I was a kid, we drove hours to get to Memphis to eat barbecue. I'm from the state of Mississippi. Now my restaurant's actually 15 minutes from downtown Memphis. I guess I've gravitated as I've gotten older to the city of Memphis. And Jalen Hurd's opinion? Oh, Texas for sure. <laughs> not even close. Not even close. <laughs> They're all pretty good, but I think Texas is a little step ahead of for sure. And the great barbecue debate remains unsettled. Jim Ryan, ABC News.
And while we're on the subject of slow-roasted meats and poultry, don't forget the pets. The star of your Thanksgiving dinner can be a great source of protein, not to mention a nice holiday treat for your four-footed friends. Pet health expert Rodney Habib, author of the book, The Forever Dog, explains how easy it is to do. They're not lambasting it with things that shouldn't go on there, like onion powder and pre-made dressings and, and things that you can put on top of the turkey. If you're just making a good turkey at home, you can slice off some of those turkey pieces, put them in your dehydrator and make turkey jerky for your dogs or your cats. Because, I mean, that's the pro- those are the products that you're buying anyways in the grocery store when you go in to buy, you know, dehydrated turkey strips. Don't have a dehydrator? Put the jerky pieces in a slow oven, say 200 degrees until it's golden and crispy. And for dessert, fresh cranberries, which Habib says prevents dementia in older pets. Now we do know with dogs, the dog's risk of canine dementia, it rises by more than 50% each year, research finds. So imagine you could prevent doggy dementia by sharing fresh cranberries with your dog. Just make sure they're not sweetened. Maybe set aside a handful or so before you make the sauce. If you ventured into the culinary corners of the social media world lately, you might have noticed that tin seafood has been all the rage. This protein-rich cuisine is way more diverse and flavorful than the canned tuna that you may be used to. But as ABC's Mike Dubusky explains, for many, tinned fish is nothing new. Times Square, New York City. Revered by some, reviled by others, it's a place for taking pictures, shopping, maybe taking in a show, either on Broadway or off. Ladies and gentlemen, it is almost showtime. It's also the home to a colorful corner shop that specializes in tinned fish. The theme is kind of this magical library. Joanna Quaresma is the project manager for the fantastic world of the Portuguese sardine. The shop is styled to look like an early 20th century carnival, with oversized toy soldiers guarding floor-to-ceiling shelves of tinned seafood, or conservice, as it's known. It's something that is very, very cherished in our culture. Quaresma says the store sells over 20 different varieties, including a display of cans designed to look like gold bars. Those come with gold leaf inlays alongside meticulously skinned and deboned sardines. Retail price, $44. So the gold bar was us trying to, trying, and I think we managed to elevate the sardine to its highest level. If you think this all sounds like a far cry from the cans of tuna fish lining your local grocery store, you're not alone. Amy McCarthy, a staff writer for the food blog Eater, says the shop divides opinion in much the same way the brightly lit intersection it calls home does. Times Square is obviously an interesting choice. Um, I don't know. Uh, how many people who live in New York are going to go out of their way to go check out this tinned fish store. But it's not like the shop is an outlier. Tinned fish is seemingly everywhere all of a sudden. Despite its retro aesthetic, the fantastic world of the Portuguese sardine is actually brand new. It opened in August. Then there's Fishwife, a canned seafood company founded in 2020, which touts responsibly sourced tinned fish for heavenly hors d'oeuvres and charming charcuterie. 
All the while, social media feeds have been filled with stacks of conservas complete with intricate, colorful, and Instagram-friendly packaging. Rating the tin fish. Tin fish date night. Ninety-three dollars. These were expensive. Tinfish, the woman who made tin fish popular and sexy. I have eaten over hundred and fifty dollars or fifty tins of fish in the last two weeks. There is a stunty, touristy, showy kind of element to it now. The process of canning fish stretches back to the mid 1800s. The first Portuguese tin of tuna, mackerel, and sardines were made by the Ramirez Canning Company in 1865. Portugal, France, uh, the Philippines, Japan, really any, any country with a coast has a rich history of tin seafood. Dan Weber is the co-owner of the Rainbow Tomatoes Garden, a farm in Pennsylvania that, in addition to growing and selling a full crop of heirloom tomatoes, also sells a huge variety of tinned seafood from around the world. So we've been doing this for uh, almost exactly three years. Weber says sardines and tuna are just the start of the veritable ocean of seafood available in a can. There are thousands of these products on the market. Salmon, oysters, even clams and octopus come in tinned form. Some come smoked, others fried. And that's before we get into what those fish are packaged with. Mussels nestled alongside allspice and bay leaf, mackerel with coriander and juniper, white tuna stuffed inside sweet red peppers. And the products are sensational. I mean, that's another huge factor here is the products are awesome. And people try them and then they go, there's 700 of these things? Like, wow! But he says calling this a tinned fish trend misses the mark. Tinned fish has always been around, always been popular, if you knew where to look. There was a significant portion of the population that has been consuming these products sort of uh, in secret or without telling anybody. Welcome back to Tin Fish Talk with Tiny Fish Co. Octopus and Butter with Lemon. May Liao makes culinary videos on TikTok and Instagram, centered in part around the world of tinned seafood. So on social media, I create a recurring short form video series that I've titled Tin Fish Talk. Each episode, I introduce a tin of fish or a concept related to tinned fish and try to provide a background and almost more education-forward resource. Chinese-American cuisine has a complicated relationship with both Americans and Chinese, so let's talk about she it. She says Growing tinned fish is fundamental to many food cultures around the world, including her own. I'm ethnically Chinese. My parents are first-generation immigrants, so a big part of the culture that I'm then able to inherit and understand my heritage through is translated through cooking. Which means that for much of the globe, tinned fish isn't a trend, it's a staple. To think of it as um, a trend food or to think of it as something that is only recently been discovered, I think does a disservice to the many cultures that incorporate tinned fish as a really kind of key component of their diet and culture. But like anything that finds itself on the receiving end of a fire hose of social media fueled attention, there are upsides and there are downsides. Remember the $44 gold bar from the fantastic world of the Portuguese sardine? Well, Weber says the company's European locations are seen in his community as tourist traps and that their first American store in Times Square is more of the same. You have graduated from fleecing customers in Portugal to fleecing the world's customers in what is basically the center of the universe for fleecing tourists. Amy McCarthy of Eater says the Times Square shop isn't alone. The popularity of tinned fish on social media didn't just drive up awareness of the cuisine, it drove up the cost too. When something like tinned fish becomes a status symbol, that is 
such an opportunity for brands to jump on the train and like just start charging you a premium for a product that isn't necessarily premium, but has a really cool looking package. Joanna Quaresma, for her part, says the gold bars are her company's attempt to bring Portugal's relationship with tinned seafood to the masses. And she says prices can be high because the company wants every part of their supply chain, from the fishermen to the workers in the factory, to be compensated fairly. Criticism, if it's constructive, we appreciate it. So with all that in mind, let's say you want to dive into the world of tinned seafood. Mei Liao says you're going to want to start with a fish packed in oil. Because I think it retains the texture and flavor much better than water. And if you're looking for a specific tin, she recommends Nuri spiced sardines. The way that they are canning the fish, they use the same traditional five spices, really tells you about the enduring cultural significance of this fish and the way that it's consumed within the Portuguese culture. Dan Weber says his team taste tests their tinned fish by putting it on a saltine cracker. But regardless of how you decide to cast off on your tinned fish journey, Weber says the important thing is to try a lot. After all, there are plenty of fish in the sea. That would be, I guess, my tinned fish hot take is there are no beginner cans of soup. There are no advanced cans of soup. Like, these products are delicious and convenient, and you should try some. And with that, we'll push away from the table. No matter what you'll be having this Thanksgiving, be it tin fish or a 20-pound turkey, our very best to you and yours. Thanks for joining us. Let's Eat was presented by ABC's Daria Albinger and produced by Trevor Hastings and Dana Schaefer. This has been a special presentation from ABC News Radio. ABC News, honored for the third year in a row with five Murrow Awards for excellence in audio, including overall excellence in network radio. ABC News, America's number one choice. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.